0: You're listening to a Money on the Move weekly series, Flashback Fridays. We are bringing back our favorite episodes from the archives. Every Friday, I'll bring you a blast from our past.
1: I think if everyone ate a bowl of oatmeal every day, most pharmaceutical companies would be out of business because statins would not be necessary.
0: Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training and showcase their expertise and story. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. I'm really psyched to share my conversation with today's guest, Ashley Reaver. She is a registered dietitian certified sports dietitian and the lead nutrition scientist at Inside Tracker. Ashley also has her own private practice, is a full-time nutrition lecturer at UC Berkeley, and of course, she's a triathlete. Get ready for a comprehensive convo on all things nutrition. Ashley and I kick off our conversation talking about performance fueling and endurance sports nutrition. We cover overtraining, using carbs, fat, and protein as fuel, volume eating, and sweat tests for the first 25 minutes of our chat. Then we do a deep dive into immune system and stress-boosting foods and nutrients, key blood biomarkers to watch from vitamin D to cortisol levels, we talk about allostatic load. Fiber, blood glucose, antioxidants, adaptogens, inflammation, and more. You may have listened to my conversation way back when with Inside Tracker founder Dr. Gil Blander on November 26, 2019. Inside Tracker uses science and technology to deliver personalized health and nutritional guidance based on your blood biomarkers that span from cholesterol, inflammation, Sports, performance, stress, your inner age, and more. Inside Tracker presents users with a plan of action of food, lifestyle, exercise, and supplement recommendations to optimize your health and help you reach your goals. I tested 43 biomarkers back in January, and the experience has been game changing for my health. I was connected to Dr. Blander and Inside Tracker through Marnie on the Move recurring guest, Dr. David Sinclair. Who's also an investor in the company? It is truly awesome and has become a resource for me and is something I definitely plan to use moving forward. So, when I connected with dietitian Ashley Reaver and the lead nutrition scientist at Inside Tracker for today's conversation, you can imagine how excited I was to discuss all things nutrition. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you like what you hear, Leave us a review on Apple. It's easy. Go to your app, click on podcasts, click on Marnie on the Move, scroll through all the episodes, click on five stars and write a review. I would greatly appreciate it. Also, feel free to share the episodes on your Instagram stories and tag us at Marnie on the Move. We'll post it in our Instagram stories as well. Thanks again if you have any questions for me, for my guests, hit me up on email marnieonthemove the 1, the number one, at gmail.com, or DM me on Instagram, Marnie Salop or Marnie on the Move. Now, on to our conversation with Ashley Reaver. And of course, before we get started, a word about our sponsors, Mad Ritual CBD. Today's episode is fueled by Mad Ritual CBD. Mad Ritual CBD has changed my recovery game in a really big way. Get ready to recover like a rebel with these awesome, high-quality, CBD-infused products. Their CBD balm is off-the-charts amazing. And I'm not the only one that thinks so. Mad Ritual has 100-plus five-star reviews. The balms have five simple organic ingredients, coconut oil, shea butter, olive oil, plant wax, CBD and different blends of essential oils. Personally, I prefer the eucalyptus and peppermint. They also offer a terrific CBD infused total recovery supplement. Not just for athletes, the products are formulated to ease all of the aches and pains that come along with being an active human. So, if you are sore from life, Mad Ritual gets it. Founded by women athletes and active entrepreneurs, they are committed to helping active folks bring more balance to their lives. Mad Ritual is offering Marnie on the Move listeners 15% off. Head over to their website madritual.com and use the code Marnie on the Move. Now, on to the episode. Where did your journey into nutrition begin?
1: It was in college, really. I had never heard of what a dietitian was before. I had to take an intro nutrition course in uh, freshman year, and I was originally pre-med. I wanted to be a pediatrician, and I was a bio major, and I think I switched my major to nutrition like the second week of college. When I was, I don't know, learned about nutrition, I figured that parents would much rather me tell them what to feed their kids as opposed to what the molecules in their body were doing. And then my sophomore year is when I actually learned what a dietitian was. And it was just like the perfect marriage of food, which has always been a lifelong love, and healthcare. And it was, just seemed perfect. I had no idea that you could get paid to just talk about food and how it relates to someone's
0: health. Way back when it wasn't as front and center as it is now, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, and yeah, I think the people there's like so much confusion around what a nutritionist, what a dietitian, what a sports dietitian does, and so I think, I think everybody knows now, though, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's really interesting, just generational change. Most of my clients are forty or younger, and. It's mostly just like the shift in where people's priorities are. I think that millennials, compared to their parents' generation, spend something like four to five times as much on health and wellness as our parents did at our age, which is just a really interesting shift is putting so much effort and attention into preventative medicine, as opposed to our parents' generation are really getting sick now because they didn't put that effort in when
0: they were younger. In general, millennials are very much interested in knowing like what's behind their brand, who's behind their brand, mm. like they are really loyal to the mission. So that totally yep. makes sense. And now I see, you know, people my parents age that are like in their, you know, 70s sort of really looking back on their nutrition and, you know, planning ahead in a healthier way. At least that's what mm. I'm seeing. I'm a triathlete. I think you're also a triathlete. hmm Yep. I see in that community, I mean, people are obsessed with their nutrition and in a healthy, good way, because you have to be. It's the fourth sport. Were you a triathlete first, or did you become a triathlete?
1: No. So working at Inside Tracker in the office, we're just, everyone is just invested in so much stuff. And one of my coworkers, he was turning 30, and he was like, I really want to do this before I'm 30. Will you please do it with me? And I said, okay. And that first triathlon, we signed up for a half Ironman in Maine, as both of our first triathlon, I'm still not a good swimmer, but I was a really bad swimmer. And then we signed up like, I think it, around December, maybe right around January at the end of, at the end of the year. And our race was in April, in August of the following year. And yeah, then we each, like we had, I think we did two sprints and one Olympic, um, as part of training leading up to that. So we had like a very long training season. We like, we had pre- were prepping for eight months. Yeah, but it was great. And then uh, I did another half Ironman in Santa Rosa last year, which was really great.
0: Where's the swim for that?
1: It is in Lake Sonoma, which is honestly the best water I've ever had in my mouth, <laughs> which sounds so creepy. But I've been back up there. I've been back up there a couple times just because it is so beautiful and I'd never heard of it before. And then the bike is through wine country. It was just really amazing. And it was pretty soon after we moved out there that I signed up for that. And I didn't know the area that well. And then as, you know, just in your training and running around and biking, I just became so much more familiar with where we had moved to. It was really great.
0: That's amazing. That race is on my list next year.
1: (laughs) It was awesome. You have to be bussed up to the lake. And then the bike ride, the first part is just like flying downhill.
0: Oh my God, that sounds like so much fun.
1: Yeah, the lake was a government made reservoir or something, but it's huge. I I went out for my birthday afterwards because I was like, yeah, I want to camp here for $20 and have this massive lake to myself. It was really cool.
0: It looks really great on the Ironman website, and Mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of swimming, although right now I would swim, no problem. (laughs) But I'm not a big fan. I do not like choppy, rough water. So Mm. the idea of going out west, like all the races are in the – all the good races really start in – open water ocean type scenario, like anywhere that's like a great vacation spot that Mm -hmm. we would go. It's always ocean obstacle for me. Yeah. Because I know myself and I know I'll get there and just be like, Nope, I'm not doing it. So (laughs) it doesn't matter how much money I spent. That one is the water is
1: calm. It's, it was a really cool race. Well, Um, I'll have to do it. Yeah. There's another one in Palm Springs. I think it's Indio. That's also in a lake, but it's hot.
0: (laughs) A hot lake, um, so no wetsuit, so no, no support yeah, system. No, I mean,
1: I think it's the end of May, but it's in Palm Desert. I think it's always hot there, but it's also very dry. But I think the Santa Rosa one, the run, messed with me a bit because it's so cool all the time in the Bay Area. I never trained above like 75 maybe for the run. And then on race day, it was like 96. So by the time I finished the run, I was struggling. But that'll be probably pretty similar to how New York will be in July.
0: Okay. Well, since we're talking about triathlon and heat and sweating and you're a nutritionist, do you do all the tests beforehand that for like how much you sweat and how much sodium and potassium and magnesium you need? And like, how do you prepare for that kind of race if it's super hot or in general, any race really?
1: Yeah. I mean, that one I was not prepared for. I think I, I should have done a lot more research on the temperature up there, And because I was just assuming that it'd be somewhat similar to the Bay Area where there's no humidity, there's always a cold breeze and it never gets hot. So I've done a sweat test in the past, but I've never done anything that is specific to my electrolytes. I am a terribly salty sweater and I know that about myself. After every race or every long run, I'm just covered in white flakes. So I do definitely take that into consideration and how I'm fueling. That one, I just didn't anticipate that I'd be dumping so much water as well. Honestly, what I have found works the best for me is actually the triathlon coach that we used. It was a good friend of ours uh, that worked with us, my friend and I, when we did the first half Ironman in Maine. Um, She just said, don't waste any space in your body on plain water. Every single thing that you're drinking during those races should be something that's giving you salt and energy as well. So I've always carried that with me really keeping that in mind, especially on those hot days, not wasting that opportunity to put some fluid in your body that can also replace your electrolytes.
0: Right. Like I use salt tablets Mm -hmm. just to be safe. That's I just err on the side of caution, but I'm not a heavy sweater, but I do I get headaches and I could cramp. So I, I always take yep. salt tablets and I always use noon hydration. Do you work with a lot of athletes on sports nutrition? Yeah, especially long form or long course. I feel like triathletes are such an
1: interesting breed of people.
0: I have a lot of triathlete listeners. That's why I'm going down this path.
1: Inside Tracker also is, it's not cheap. And triathletes are used to making investments in their endeavors. Really, athletes are the first people that Before Fitbit came along, athletes were the only people that were used to making some sort of investment in their health when they weren't sick. But triathletes, as far as diet go, I feel like to be a triathlete, there's a very specific type A type of person. You have to like putting a lot of stuff on your plate. You have to like a challenge. You have to be able to follow a schedule that's jam-packed. And the same thing kind of flows into diet. Not for everyone, but certainly in clients that I work with in my private practice, but also users of Insight Tracker over the years that we've spent a lot of time getting to know too. And that sometimes there's a little bit too much rigidity trying to be a little too perfect and not allowing so much room for flexibility. And honestly, not eating enough food is the biggest issue that I usually find with endurance athletes.
0: In general, right? Like not just on race day, but in general.
1: Yes, exactly. one of my clients right now she does uh, like 40 mile bike rides all the time. probably does two two or three a week, but she was also eating like 1,600 calories a day and it's just an interesting shift to really like take people out from you're not being excessive when you're eating enough food to fuel your activity. And that's honestly one of the biggest conversations that I have to have is, I would say, getting people to trust me enough that I'm not trying to make them gain 40 pounds, that this is really how much energy their body wants to consume in order to like perform their best, to feel great on their rides, to not be completely tanked the rest of the day after training. And that's, you know, so you're not always going to be able to get there with brown rice and quinoa sometimes you really should just eat some ice cream because that's what your body wants. And you're in a great position to like go after the ice cream right now.
0: Right, that's really that's really positive. I like that. I think that when I first started training for triathlons, it was probably about 10 years ago. And I just, my diet was horrible. It was so horrible. And I met someone who was a nutritionist and she got my diet. She kicked my ass and got my diet in major shape. And then I started doing triathlons. And I could never grasp the amount of food I needed to eat to just maintain. Like I I lost Mm -hmm. so much weight and it wasn't good. You know, it was like Mm -hmm. I was still eating, you know, but it was just I was eating so much healthy stuff that like it just didn't show. And, you know, when you're doing that kind of mileage and distance and burning calories, like it's not just that day that you're doing the race. It's all the time. But I think, Mm -hmm. you know, eating sweet potatoes – really changed my life and kale. I know that sounds ridiculous, (laughs) but it's really like just that like that's a good like I love sweet potatoes and that has been a staple in my diet. I try to eat, you know, a lot of sweet potatoes and avocados when I'm training as much as possible. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of athletes and then when they stop training, they're still eating the same amount of calories.
1: Yeah, which I think is okay for maybe like a month a month and a half and then after that point your muscles are starting to to shrink a little bit so your body doesn't need as much fuel but you do have a little bit of leeway there which is nice
0: as an athlete like a runner a triathlete any kind of athlete that's doing endurance you know long course racing obviously there's a formula for how many calories they should be eating based on their weight and their height and you know the amount of training they're doing does inside tracker look at this data and info in the onboarding process of Insight Tracker, you
1: go through and fill up some people think it's extensive, but um, we give you a lot of feedback and I would like to double the length of questions that we ask to be as specific as possible. But in that it asks some lifestyle and some food. And then the exercise question questionnaire portion is actually pretty large. So if you're accurately putting in the amount of activity that you're doing, then you will get a, a recommended calorie intake. For some people, it is crazy high. I always love the people that are like, I think there's a bug in your system because you told me I need to eat 4,000 calories. And I'm like, no, you really need to eat 4,000 calories. <laughs> Unless you made a mistake in your activity, that's really how much you should be eating. And you know, then it's, well, how do I balance that with weight loss? And weight loss and performance don't really go together. You have to make a decision. Usually I would say focus on performance. That's going to teach you one, it's going to build up your lean body mass, which is going to help you eventually lose weight if you stop exercising that much. But trying to just put those two things together is hard. And that's a hard message, I think, for a lot of people to hear. It's also a very hard one for us to automate.
0: Right. Well, I mean, how do you eat 4,000 calories, right? Like, where do you get that food from? I mean, sure, we could eat like 20 steaks in a day, but I mean, like, if yeah. you're eating healthy, you have yeah. to supplement.
1: Well, and I think a, an important thing to remember is usually if you're training for those longer races, Having a thousand of those calories as part of your workout in order to fuel it is something that's definitely possible. It takes work. It takes effort. And I think another part of being an endurance athlete is knowing how to feed yourself. You are not going to scrape together a diet that makes you feel good if the majority of your food is coming outside of your house. It is a volume eating sport as well. And you are grazing all the time. Personally, I love to eat. So that's also a benefit of being active for me is that I can eat.
0: (laughs) I'm moving away from athletes soon. I just got my coaching certification from Ironman. It's not easy to understand nutrition.
1: The info that you've always heard all of your life of things to not eat much of and restrict. It's hard to just turn that off.
0: Like carbs, for example. Yeah. I mean, as an athlete, we really do need to eat a lot of carbs because that's the fuel that burns fast, right? And then Mm -hmm. there's fat. So how do you find the right balance of carbs and fat to be eating assuming you're, you're training. And even if you're in your like early phases of training and you're just working in zone two, right? Which is if I was talking about like zone two, zone three, and then maybe racing, how do you sort of like shape your diet generally speaking? So this isn't for everyone, just like an overview if you have one.
1: Yeah. So how I always like to think about diet is thinking of the components that should change with activity and the ones that shouldn't. So Protein is something that is based on your body weight and your activity level. Throughout training, though, you're going to eat the same amount of protein no matter how much you're working out. Carbs are really something that's going to go up and down a lot based on the type of training that you're doing that day, since it is the fuel source that your muscles want to use. And then I always like to consider fat as filler. So you have a calorie need, and then you know what you're going to get from protein isn't gonna contribute a ton to that. Carbs, depending on how much you're exercising per day, are gonna take up at least 50 to 60, probably can certainly be up to 75, depending on how many calories some people need. Percent of your calories. Yep, right, sorry. And then fat's gonna be what helps you fill it the rest of the way. Yeah, certainly, you know, your body uses fat as fuel, but it is not the type of fuel that your muscles want. They can use it, but you are already asking your body to do so, so much. Why would you also ask it to create its own fuel from these fuel sources that it would prefer not to use? Um, Yeah, definitely. And there's, yes, and it's not something that your body can also create glucose from protein. So if you're eating way too much protein, your body takes those amino acids through a pretty long taxing process to convert it into glucose, which is what carbohydrates are converted into, just so that your muscle and also your brain has its preferred fuel source. And again, you're you're asking your body to do so much. Why would you also ask it to go through these harder processes to use those fuel sources? But you also don't get to strategically time when that protein gets converted into glucose. So that could hit you in the middle of the night, not in the middle of a really tough workout when you want that fuel source. And the same thing goes for fat.
0: Since we are talking about glucose and performance fueling, some athletes prefer to use fat as fuel, also known as a keto diet. What are your thoughts here?
1: Yeah, I was just going to go down into the keto. Yeah, so that coming around is slightly different than low carb, and it's a little different than paleo, but the same stuff Like every four to five years, one of these diets comes back and is really popular. The keto diet, the point of the keto diet, the ketogenic diet is to get into ketosis, which is when your body no longer has been either given carbohydrates to use as fuel or it has used, I should say, and it has used all of the stored forms of carbohydrate that's in your body, which includes the glycogen in your muscle as well as the glycogen that's stored in your liver. So then your body goes into essentially utilizing fat as a fuel source and in that process produces ketones, And to be in ketosis, it is somewhere around less than 20 grams of carbs per day, which is like a cup of raspberries, basically. It's insanely hard. And the diet was really created in order to protect and help to heal people with traumatic brain injuries, because the brain is the primary, its preferred fuel source is glucose. And if it is your system is devoid of glucose, the energy flow to the brain is also a little bit different. The diet was really created as a way to allow healing to happen because the brain would essentially have less fuel than is needed. And it's you know, it's for people that have seizures, have had traumatic brain injuries, potentially have brain cancer. It is not for people that are trying to do an iron man.
0: Or just everyday life. Right, exactly.
1: And it's again, it's not it's also just hard. And again, yes, your body can use it as a fuel source, but it. why are we asking the body to do that? It's also insanely expensive and it comes at the cost of your cardiovascular health. Having a heart attack when you're 42 but you're skinny, it's still a heart attack. (laughs)
0: Because you're eating Um, so much protein and fat.
1: Yeah, and so much unhealthy fats, the saturated fats that can clog your arteries. And what you're not having if you've eliminated carbohydrates is you're not having a good source of soluble fiber, which that's why fiber is so important for health in general. Oatmeal is by far my favorite food. I think if everyone ate a bowl of oatmeal every day, most pharmaceutical companies would be out of business because statins would not be necessary. But what oatmeal does, it's a great source of this soluble fiber. And basically in our uh, small intestines, in our lower GI tract, it binds bile, which is a digestive juice that's needed to break down fat. Uh, But once it's trapped, once it's bound to the soluble fiber, it's transported out of our body. And that is really the only consistent way to get cholesterol basically out of the body, because bile is produced from cholesterol. So when we lose that bile, when it's trapped to soluble fiber, the body has to produce more. And it does that by pulling on our cholesterol stores. And without that, like constant excretion, for lack of a better word of bile, cholesterol is just going to accumulate in humans. So you could be eating a super squeaky clean diet with very minimal, with very minimal animal fats, or coconut oil, which is also a very significant source of saturated fat that can increase your LDL level. But if you don't have that soluble fiber, your cholesterol level is still going to accumulate because humans are going to make cholesterol regardless. So it really is, is a balance. And
0: yeah, I never even realized how important fiber was in our diet until I did my inside tracker panel. Talk to me a little bit about the two different types of fiber.
1: Yeah. So the soluble fiber, which is what you find in oats, it's soluble because it swells when it comes into contact with water. So if you think about putting a cup of oats or chia seeds or beans in the fridge in a cup of water overnight, they're going to swell. And that's a great example of what soluble fiber is. And that type of soluble fiber is what's really important for managing blood glucose levels, as well as for sure your cholesterol, but it also really is good for GI stuff. The other one Insoluble fiber doesn't change when it comes in contact with water. So if you put celery or broccoli in a cup of water overnight, it's going to look exactly the same in the morning. And that's a good way to kind of distinguish in your mind, which is soluble and which is insoluble. Insoluble is usually where you get a lot of the vitamins and minerals from fruits and vegetables with as well. That type of fiber is important because it moves through our body, but it doesn't have quite the metabolic impact that soluble fiber does. And one of my biggest, biggest pet peeves is with athletes that track their macros and they, let's say, eat a lot of cabbage and say, cabbage is my carb. Cabbage is not a carb. All of the carbs in cabbage are fiber, which your body cannot use as a carb source whatsoever. So eliminating your like veggie carbs, really, unless it is a a starchier vegetable like uh, squash or sweet potatoes.
0: Yeah. Not counting
1: the fiber that's in them is very important.
0: So oatmeal counts as a carb though.
1: Yes, for sure. All of those soluble fiber sources. And again, you know, fiber is something that I think a lot of people are comfortable, like noting that it's important, but thinking that they get all of their carbs and all of their fiber from fruits and vegetables is not correct. You're missing out on one of these massive, like the most important type of fiber, in my opinion, for your metabolic health is that soluble fiber piece. So you really need both of them. Just eating a lot of raw vegetables, sure, you might have 40 grams of fiber, but it's not the like balance or the type of fiber that you really want.
0: So, I mean, oatmeal is perfect. I mean, that's easy. People can get oatmeal. They can eat oatmeal every day. I've been eating oatmeal every day, for years until I started training for marathons. I mean, I can't eat that for breakfast. (laughs) And I couldn't figure out why, because normally my pre triathlon, my pre race meal is a bowl of oatmeal, you know, a couple hours before, like two hours before and then coffee, whatever. And then I'll have a banana closer to the race. But when Mm -hmm. I started, I was training for the New York City marathon. And when I was training, like it just completely destroyed my stomach. I could not eat oatmeal. I was trying to find food that I could eat. And then I was like, Oh, maybe I just need to eat like four hours before I do my run. (laughs) I mean, ultimately, I'm still trying to figure it out. But I've kind of now there's no marathon. So
1: yeah, that's the fiber content of the fiber content of oatmeal. And also, you you train your stomach just like you train your muscles for those events. So if anyone is going on a long run uh, before they or right after they listen to this, don't eat a big bowl of oatmeal. And then go on a 20-mile run because your stomach's not used to utilizing that fuel source and dealing with the fiber of that. But yeah, fiber is for sure something that, one, can bulk in our system and pushes things through. So in endurance activity, we are at a more accelerated rate pushing, pushing things through our GI tract. So having something that's high in fiber before an endurance uh, event or activity definitely can have an impact residual is what they
0: call it. It, it,
1: Foods that are high in residue would be ones that are high in fiber that can cause a lot of GI
0: issues. So speaking of GI, let's talk about immunity, because I know that a lot of our immune system, and since we're in these COVID times, you know, what are some foods that we can be eating to help boost our immune system? And what are some of the blood biomarkers that we should be looking at? I know it starts in the gut.
1: Yeah, fiber is definitely really important for that. There are of bacteria that live in our lower GI tract that take food one step further than our GI tract can, uh, can take them. Um, and the activity and the health of those lower GI bacteria are actually really important for immune health. So fiber is, is a great example for that. And the three vitamins that I always tell people to focus on for immune health are vitamins A, C, and E. Those are ones that you should get through food. Vitamin A, you mostly find in red, orange, or yellow-hued fruits and vegetables, or dark leafy greens. So sweet potatoes are an awesome example. And cooking them or and sauteing them or eating them with some type of oil helps to increase our body's ability to absorb the vitamin A. Vitamin C, we're all used to citrus. We're coming out of citrus season now, but we're heading into berry season. Berries are another really great source of vitamin C, as are broccoli, bell peppers, Brussels sprouts, and kiwi. And then the last one, vitamin E, mostly you find it in nuts and seeds. Wheat germ and wheat germ oil, as well as sunflower seeds and sunflower seed butter are the best sources of vitamin E. That's a swap, an easy swap for most people is if you eat almond butter, peanut butter, just swap it in for sunflower seed butter in order to really boost your vitamin E. And those three are really important because they're antioxidants. And antioxidants are essentially how I like to explain antioxidants is inflammation is kind of a snowball. So a little bit of inflammation, which maybe is caused by activity, or it could be You know you have a toothache or you have something else happening in your body, maybe there's you know bacteria germs floating around that have come in uh, you've come into contact with. That little bit of inflammation your body mounts an inflammatory response and in the process of mounting that inflammatory response a little bit more damage happens. So your body mounts another inflammatory response and so on and so on. And eventually it's kind of like a snowballing effect. Inflammation level in your body gets pretty high. Antioxidants are really important because they kind of come in and they break that cycle. They can stop that process from kind of growing. And again, inflammation can come from all sorts of stuff chronic conditions for sure also add inflammation. So making sure that your diet has a lot of those antioxidants is really important.
0: Would resveratrol be a good supplement to take as an antioxidant?
1: And we recommend that supplement for reducing blood glucose levels if you're a diabetic. There is not an impact on the one inflammation marker that we test, which is HSCRP which is a really non-specific marker of inflammation. So you know, I could kick you in the shin. You could have just run a marathon or maybe you have a toothache. We don't really know why that level is high. It's just showing us that it is high. But when I was doing research on wine, the best time to have a half glass of red wine is really in the morning. So I told my boss the next day, okay, well, sorry, you made me research this. So I'm gonna come in a little bit buzzed each day after a half glass of red wine.
0: I asked David Sinclair that question. <laughs> He was like, no, I'm like, should I go drink a <laughs> bottle of wine? He's like, I don't think it's good for your liver. Yeah,
1: a half a glass of red wine a day is the ideal amount. It's difficult. And no, you can't, you know, stockpile all of those onto a Saturday. Um, the benefits certainly eventually are outweighed. Yeah, but that's also, you know, also how I like to think about inflammation or the immune system is that it's really a bucket or something called Alice allostatic load, and it's really how much your body can handle at a time. So in that bucket, if you are really stressed out, that's something that adds water to the bottom of that bucket. If you're sick, that's water in that bucket. If you're exercising a ton without enough rest, recovery, or fuel, that's something that can add to that bucket. So then if you, let's say there's some sort of bacteria or germ in the air, and then that comes into contact with your system, if your bucket's already really full, that's going to cause your bucket to spill over. Your body can only handle so much. All of those things are just really, really key for keeping your immune system as healthy as possible.
0: And so what are your thoughts on probiotics? Do you think that they're helpful? I've had, like, I've heard different things. I mean, I've always thought they were helpful, but then I heard prebiotics are better or I don't know. So what, what are your thoughts on probiotics?
1: I don't think that there's enough research to give a Conclusive, yes or no, I think for some people. Honestly, I think we won't get that research until microbiome is much better researched. It's like a really new, cool, emerging field, but I think we're still a little ways away from that. The best type of probiotic will probably be one that is specifically formulated for you based on your microbiome analysis, because it'll be able to show which strains of bacteria you would, you know, maybe you're low in or too high in. As a blanket that everyone should take a probiotic, I don't think that because there's a lot of deviation in what's available as a probiotic. I think eating foods that have probiotics in them are also a great way to go. Having something once a day, that's some sort of fermented food. It could be yogurt, kefir, kombucha, sauerkraut, kimchi, anything like that. My one thing with probiotics, though, they are supported for a couple of our biomarkers. My one benefit or my one thing that I always like to tell people is that There are very specific strains that are shown to be beneficial and something that really considers the point of a probiotic is really diversifying the bacteria in your gut. So if you're going to go get a probiotic that just has one strain and you take that single strain constantly for years, you're not doing anything for the diversity in your gut. You're just helping for that one strain to to proliferate in your gut.
0: So people should look at their probiotic and look at what strains they are and sort of think about that if they're gonna take one.
1: Yeah, and we recommend three strains. We have not found a probiotic that has all three strains in them. We have found some that have two of the three But more so what I like to recommend people is just change that probiotic up. You have about six weeks of a probiotic per bottle. Usually what I say go and look at what's on sale, find at least one of these strains, take it for six weeks. When you run out, go back and find what's on sale in those six weeks, find at least one of those strains and then buy it so that you're constantly introducing new and different strains to your gut because that's what's most beneficial.
0: Interesting. If people want to know the three strains of probiotics that they should be taking, are they on the Inside Tracker website?
1: Yes. All of our supplement recommendations, we have done a ton of work there because supplements aren't regulated in the U.S. Supplement companies can put whatever they want in a bottle, slap a label on it and sell it and there's no one there to hold them accountable. So we've done a ton of research and every single supplement recommendation that you get. We have uh, looked at different brands of supplements and and selected the ones that um, have been tested by third-party companies actually have in there what they say they have in there, don't have other weird things like arsenic in them, and that you can buy. So if there's a probiotic supplement that has all of these, but it's only available if you're part of a lab test, that's not helpful. Um, So every recommendation you get, including if you have a probiotic recommendation, it says the three strands that we recommend, and then it also gives you two or three options of the very specific supplement that is recommended because it has exactly the dosage and is actually having that active compound as well in it. So we try and make it as easy as possible because there's a lot of fluff out there.
0: The Inside Tracker website has become a major resource for me on finding information on nutrition and supplements. Speaking of supplements, let's talk about vitamin D. Vitamin D is absorbed into our skin via the sun. I know at a certain point of our lives, our skin can no longer absorb as much as we need. What's the deal with vitamin D and what does it have to do with COVID-19?
1: Obviously for this new COVID-19, there is nothing conclusive that's out now, but there have been papers published that like 90% of patients that end up on intubated on respirators have low levels of vitamin D. And vitamin D is also something that's super important for your immune system. So typically, if you're outside in really it's between April and November, if you live in the northeast, the sun is the UV rays from the sun. Basically, in our skin, they convert a form of cholesterol into vitamin D. The sun is strong enough isn't quite the right word, but the UV rays are only able to produce that vitamin D in the in our skin in, in the Northeast between April and November. Other than that, which is usually the way that a lot of people get that vitamin D, you, it is in some foods and some fatty fish and in some radiated mushrooms, which are basically mushrooms that have been put underneath UV lights, but not in very large amounts. And then lastly, some types of dairy is fortified, but again, those are very small amounts. And skin is how we evolved to get enough vitamin D. but Sunscreen is usually on every inch of a lot of people's bodies when they're outside right now. And it's SPF 15 and above. So 15, I think, is like the lowest sunblock you can even buy, the lowest SPF. If that's on your skin, your body's not able to produce vitamin D. And again, if you're out with any sort of hat or sleeves, if there's no skin covered, it's not going to get through that clothing either.
0: And a lot of people don't even know that they have low vitamin D. I mean, you go to the doctor, Mm -hmm. you get tested, they tell you... Yeah, personally speaking, I have low vitamin D in general. And you would think that I would have high vitamin D because I'm always outside. Winter, summer, spring, fall, I'm always running outside. I'm always out walking my dogs. This has been going on for a couple of years. I've never taken a vitamin D supplement before. So, I mean, I've been taking one since I did my inside tracker test. And obviously, because I know it's a huge component in boosting your immune system, I'm sure it's better. Now for the past like two months, I've been taking like 4,000.
1: Well, vitamin D is, it's a fat soluble vitamin. So once you reach a certain level, it's stored in your fat cells and your body's going to take what it needs, but getting yourself out of a ditch of a very low vitamin D level To a point where certainly someday you won't need 4,000 IUs every single day, but it does take a lot to get out of that ditch, especially if you're not, it's insanely hard to reach that through food and sun on its own. You know, you're running around New York City where a lot of the times if you're running, you maybe aren't in direct sun. Um, The recommendation for sun on your skin is at least 20 minutes a day of sun exposure on the back of your neck with no sunblock and no clothes covering it. Um, for most of us, we probably don't walk around with the back of our necks exposed, especially <laughs> if we're running, maybe wearing a hat or our hair is down. Uh, the collar of our shirt is, is high. So it's hard to get.
0: So that's why the supplement is super helpful. And I'm sure I definitely was in a ditch. So I'm getting mm-hmm. out of the ditch.
1: You know, it's not just for people in the Northeast. We also have plenty of baseball players that are outside in the sun nonstop in Florida, for months, so that still have low vitamin D because when they're outside, they have on sleeves, they have on hat, they have on sunblock. African Americans, they—if you think about where most Black people in the U.S. came from—was really Africa or in the Caribbean islands, very sunny places. And the skin being darker is a protective mechanism so that you're not absorbing quite as much of the UV rays from the sun. So you know, shifting a lot of people that have much darker skin into climates that are pretty much devoid or devoured of sunshine. Especially for certain months of the year, African Americans in the U.S. are much, much more likely to have lower levels of vitamin D as
0: well. I mean, that's a test your doctor does, like what your basic test. So that's
1: it's one you do have to request. It is not on a standard panel by any means. You have to go in and specifically ask your doctor, or if you say um, you're tired or whatever else, maybe it triggers it for them. But it's not something like glucose and cholesterol that they run regularly.
0: And if your vitamin D is low, there's other things that could be happening in your body, not just like your vitamin D being low or your immune system, right? I mean, there's other things to look at like that are going on, like other blood biomarkers.
1: Yeah, so you, uh, yes, yeah, certainly vitamin D is, is associated with other things. As far as vitamin D being low because of other things is less likely. There are certainly some conditions and definitely some genetic factors, but having a lower vitamin D also definitely impacts your body's ability to absorb calcium. And as athletes, that's very important that your bones remain strong. It also can have an impact on your body's ability to produce testosterone, can certainly cause some levels of inflammation. It has, it's a hormone. It's interesting that it's called a, it's a vitamin, but it functions much more like a hormone than it does a water-soluble vitamin.
0: Interesting. What about zinc? How does this mineral factor into boosting our immune system?
1: Yeah, so zinc is, I think, an interesting one. It's a difficult one to test in your blood. It's something that can change a lot. If you have a very high level of zinc, it could mean that there's an infection. If you have a very low level of zinc, it could mean that there's an infection. And it's something that we used to test in Inside Tracker, and we decided to stop because it was hard to get a very consistent read on it and provide clear recommendations for whether or not someone needed to be concerned about zinc. Most of us get zinc in our diet. You mostly would find it in grains and meat. So, for a supplement, I don't think it's worth mega dosing yourself on that. I don't usually think it's worth mega dosing yourself on anything. But yeah, one, I would say zinc is its similar to vitamin C if you feel comfortable taking it. Okay. If it makes you feel a little bit more confident and it's going to relieve some stress, that also has an impact on your uh, immune system. But I don't think that there's any clear cut evidence that. Everyone is deficient in zinc, and we should all be taking something.
0: Okay, and speaking of stress, Mm -hmm. obviously stress has a huge impact on your immune system because of cortisol levels and how stress levels can affect your immune system and what are some foods that you can eat and maybe some supplements you can take to help level things out and ease anxiety.
1: Sure, so if we go back to the bucket example of the allostatic load, you know, stress is definitely adding more water to that bucket, and the potential of that bucket filling over is much higher when your cortisol level is elevated. And cortisol is really a quote-unquote stress hormone. Um, And if you think about um, cortisol's role in the body, it's made through a really similar pathway as other hormones, um, and diverting a lot of resources into producing cortisol, which is our fight-or-flight Um, hormone can take away those resources from producing other hormones. And cortisol is kind of a chicken or the egg where being frazzled and stressed can increase your cortisol level, but having a high level of cortisol can also make you feel much more frazzled and stressed. So it's a terrible feedback loop. And some things to really focus on with cortisol is really evolutionarily why we have cortisol makes a lot of sense. If we are walking around in the desert and a lion jumped out at us, We would have a big surge in cortisol its role in the body is to break down muscle and fat and convert it into glucose that our body could use as a fuel source to hopefully outrun whatever's chasing us and while most of us aren't being chased by wild animals today our body responds to every type of stress in the exact same way certainly the world today is stressful but you know if you have a deadline if you're in traffic if you have a fight with a spouse any of those things the body has the exact same response The same thing also happens if you're not sleeping enough and if you're not fueling your body enough in particular to support your activity. Those are also things that can increase that cortisol level. And, you know, going back to triathletes, not necessarily eating enough food. You're asking your body to do a lot of activity, and if you're not providing that energy, the body's gonna go in and do it by breaking down your muscle, which is very counter to what you're doing when you're training, and can certainly lead to a lot of injuries as well. Some things to focus on, the only supplement that's really supported, at least through Inside Tracker's research, is ashwagandha for lowering cortisol levels. And I did all the research on that, and I was insanely skeptical.
0: It's an herb in the adaptogen family.
1: Yeah, I think the one thing that's frustrating a little bit about, you know, Inside Tracker, we are insanely rigorous in the amount of scientific support we need to have or that needs to be out there that we found um, in order to make any sort of recommendation. And for supplements, it's a, there's a very wide divide between Western medicine supplements. So like vitamin D and B12, um, there's a ton of research on that. And a lot of them are funded by pharmaceutical companies. Versus Eastern medicine, things like ashwagandha and even like ginger and ginseng and garlic, all of those types of things. There's no massive supplement company behind that that's funding a ton of research. So the studies are smaller. So it just takes a lot more of them to feel comfortable recommending that. I, would, I wouldn't say a supplement works unless I could see some evidence across a couple of studies that it is beneficial. And ashwagandha is something that we did find. The mushrooms right now, I think that that's all over the place. I don't think that there's any harm. Um, there's just not really evidence that points to eating mushroom powder being the best thing that you could ever possibly do. Doesn't mean it's wrong. It just isn't something that we're going to recommend because the scientific evidence isn't there yet so ashwagandha is a a good one. I did an experiment when we first added that recommendation. Uh, I slept really, really well. My cortisol went down, went down during, I was finishing up my last semester of graduate school, working full time. And it was like Christmas and it still went down. So I was like, okay, this works pretty well. But I did really feel calmer and I had crazy, crazy dreams the six weeks that I took it, which is also really interesting.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, it is, it's an herb. Yes, adaptogens are interesting. Adaptogen is like a
1: term for, we don't really know how it works, but it makes you deal with stress better. There's just not really like clear pathways as to what is exactly being impacted.
0: With adaptogens, you are not supposed to take them all year long like you have to take it's almost like you take them for a certain time period sort of like what you were talking about with the probiotics it takes a long time to for them to work and then it's not like overnight taking xanax or something yeah it's like you've got to have patience and you have you can't pop in ashwagandha yeah totally (laughs) but it does it does work
1: i think that what and that i think rings true for most supplements is that you probably don't need anything all the time for the rest of your life but you know your decision to take those supplements really should be driven by either data like blood work once you no longer need it it doesn't necessarily mean to completely stop because obviously when you weren't taking it there was a level um, in particular i'm thinking about iron but it also you know you could back off the amount because you don't need that and same with your vitamin d once you reach a like high enough level I would back off to taking 4000 just once a week as opposed to taking it every day just to help to maintain that level. But yeah, they are not something that you're supposed to be taking at really high doses for the rest of time. That is not what supplements are supposed to do.
0: Right. I think a lot of people misunderstand that. I think maybe now there will be a new movement for people really bringing a heightened awareness to their health and wellness. What are the biomarkers that you're testing in the immunity package?
1: So we look at inflammation markers, Uh, we definitely test your vitamin D, but we're also looking at markers related to sleep and stress because those are just as important for managing that overall load of what your body can deal with at once. So cortisol is in there, we have vitamin D, your HSCRP, your white blood cell count, glucose is in there as well. Fasting blood glucose can be, it's a great acute measure of stress basically. And there's one more that I may be missing, but those are the main ones. And that's really where a lot of our recommendations also focus around. And it's not just recommendations to necessarily improve that singular marker. So like taking ashwagandha may decrease your cortisol. Um, There's certainly some aspects to immunity that don't have anything to do with your biomarkers, um, like how to sleep better. We also provide advice like that. So the recommendations aren't just get eight hours of sleep. It would also be how to ensure that the even if it's not eight hours, that the time that your head's on that pillow is really maximizing the benefits of sleep in order to improve your immune system.
0: What are your thoughts on on like pulmonary health and just recovery after COVID-19?
1: Yeah, I mean, I honestly have no idea. I would say thoughts on lung health in general, though, is just that damage that happens to your lungs to some extent can be heal- healed, but there are always going to be effects that are there. Right. I think it will be interesting to see in 5, 10, 15 years, individuals that suffered from that, what happens to it. Um, You know, we hear these things like this all the time. You know, unfortunately, 9-11, the asbestos in those buildings, you know, now is when we are, the deaths are coming right now. And that was 20 years ago. And, you know, smokers, you can be, you can have given up smoking 20 or 30 years ago and you still can develop lung cancer and die from it so i have no idea i'm not a pulmonologist but i would imagine that we would see somewhat similar trends that in 10 15 20 years we'll be seeing effect we'll still be seeing the effects of coronavirus
0: so you're not testing right now, right? Because you can't. Because- no.
1: So lab cores are still open. So technically, someone could buy a test and go to lab core. How lab cores are functioning at the moment, as you like, sit in your car and then they come to the door and get you, and you're the only person in there. This probably isn't a good business decision, but I would say that. If you purchase a test right now, it's probably best to leave those people to be exposed only for essential purposes,
0: but you can start, you can still buy everything and they'll just be on, on hold. Yeah. And like once we're sort of like through the weeds and a couple months and it would be a good time if you haven't already done it. Like I feel lucky that I was able to do it before this happened, but it's always a good thing to invest in your health, especially after this lesson that we're seeing now, you know, just being aware of, you know all of these things at any given time is helpful so people could buy tests now and then go do them later
1: yep i it's always best to have one test and then to at least have one follow-up test to see if the interventions that you're doing are making a difference and if they are do you need to continue doing them if they're not do you need to choose something else or is there something like hygiene around that intervention that maybe could be improved
0: there are all kinds of packages for biomarkers on Inside Tracker and a range of different price points. Listeners can also sign up and just upload their existing blood work that they've gotten from their general practitioner or doctor to get nutritional recommendations from Inside Tracker. They can also just read your blog.
1: Yeah, and I love that we let uh, there, you can upload an unlimited um, amount of past or future blood results that you have from anywhere else. So a lot of the how I'd like to recommend because I know it's expensive, um, it is an investment. You know, so if you start with that higher plan package, then you could meet with your physician, show them, give them some evidence that you're concerned about these biomarkers. Have insurance provide um, a follow up test. You can upload those results and you'll generate new recommendations based on those blood results just as you would if you'd purchased a test through us.
0: Right. Because at the end of the day, your mission at Inside Tracker is to be a resource and help people, I mean, as a business, yeah. but also.
1: Unfortunately, it can't be free, but I mean, our goal is to help people live longer and everything that we do is really designed on with that goal in mind, but also providing recommendations in a um, approachable and realistic way and really empowering people to to take control of what they can control.
0: Does Inside Tracker offer consultations?
1: Yeah, we have four dietitians on staff. It's not something that we promote on the website, but if anyone contacts our customer service team and says they'd like to talk about their results with someone, someone is always available to do that.
0: Right. And I know that with my when my results came back, you guys had said, you know, you should talk to your doctor about these blood levels which is yeah. also super helpful because you talk to your doctor yeah i mean again there's
1: some things that you're not going to be able to eat more sweet potatoes to fix and in those cases you know we want you to be healthy and if that requires your doctor to look at your results and make some decisions with you about your health then that certainly also falls within the realm of what we're trying to achieve and for many people that don't have a a primary care provider that's also a good way for us to encourage them to have one we can only do so much but if you really have a problem you should be in contact with someone that's helping you manage your health
0: yeah i mean this has been so helpful thank you it sounds like you have a great mix of things going on in your career
1: so i do private practice my private practice now it's all remotely but before i was working with people in person and remotely but i also teach at uc berkeley oh cool yeah so that was a i went in to to teach for one class and they ended up having a full-time role full-time in academia is a little bit different than other places. Do you see clients? Yeah. So there I'm accepting clients, but there's, I only have about 10 to 15 hours a week for clients, which works out fine. Usually I like to meet with clients every two to three weeks. And I work with people for three months at a time, just because you are not going to solve every issue you have related to food or learn everything in in one 60 minute session. And I like to set that expectation up front, but I also certainly want you to be successful and I know that takes a little bit more time than one session.
0: And yeah. I don't really know any nutritionists that it's surprising, you know, in New York that I work with.
1: So private practice is hard. And I think that most of our schooling has encouraged us not to be entrepreneurial. We do not get any at all education on how to actually open and run a business. And it's intimidating. And I think, again, a lot of, I don't know, a lot of dietitians are type A, but they are also... I like to call myself a gardener, not the flower. And that's just not really the business owner mentality necessarily. So there's not very many dietitians in private practice.
0: Building a business is a challenge.
1: Yeah, honestly, it was my parents that really were like enough is enough <laughs> because they both owned their own businesses, not in health. And my sister is a realtor, so she basically has her own business as well. But that's not like a normal situation. And I think I would have been, I was hesitant to take that step. And it was only with them Really pushing me and also seeing the success that they had and flexibility that also inspired me to do it. So, right now I work part time for Inside Tracker, and that was, I was full time for three and a half years. And I've been part time for the last two years because I had really missed that one on one connection that you can get in private practice. Like, I am so, I love the fact that I feel like my recommendations are reaching so many people through the Inside Tracker platform, but you can only do so much with that. And I just missed connecting with and following someone for a long time and seeing their success and just being a resource outside of, you know, just a single recommendation, but how you can actually implement that and how that implementation is going.
0: And so your website is myweeklyeats and your Instagram is myweeklyeats as well.
1: Yeah. So I've kind of put those, I gave myself permission to put those two things on the back burner once I started teaching in September. My website is myweeklyeats.com. My website is now Our Weekly Eats. I think I'll change it, Um, but I haven't posted in almost a year on that.
0: So you're inside tracker part-time, and then you're teaching full-time. Full-time, and I have, yeah, my private practice on the side. That's so great that you're teaching.
1: I feel like I just really lucked into it. Berkeley needed a – the position I thought I was applying for was just to teach a food science cooking lab. And then when I went in for the interview, they were like, actually, we need someone for full-time. Would you do it? And I was like – in the year of yes last year so I said yes because I had always wanted like I can remember my first teaching has always been a goal for me in that intro nutrition course where I eventually also became you know decided to change my major I just remember thinking how amazing it is that like my professor gets to impact 600 kids every single semester every single year and then even if that's the only nutrition course those students are going to take they're all going to take away at least one thing in how they feed themselves and I just thought that was amazing and I will actually be teaching the intro that there's two different intro nutrition courses over the summer and then this is the first year that we'll be offering a sports nutrition course. It's a six-week course from July to like mid-August that I'll be teaching, and I'm super stoked about that.
0: And everything is online?
1: Yeah, they've already made the decision that they're online. They will also be recorded, so you don't have to attend live. Um, A lot of our students that took those summer courses were international students, so they'll be posted and recorded because 2 a.m. class really sucks, as I'm learning now, as all the classes this semester are online.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's the move as far. I don't think we're going back. I'm, I'm already on 2021. Yeah, I don't
1: know about fall.
0: Thank you so much. This has been so great.
1: Awesome. This was so much fun.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social Money on the move one at gmail.com and let me know what you're enjoying what you want to hear more of if you have questions for our guests just reach out